Lord, we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word. We ask you to guide and lead us to what you would want us to understand through this section of scripture. And we thank you for your death, burial, and resurrection so that we can go to heaven. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 11, we're continuing in the Jesus is the better. <laughs> he was the better priest. The, he was the... The imperfection of the sacrifices has been the first part of this chapter, and starting at verse 11. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect temple, and made with hand, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption, redemption for us, for if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled it, sprinkling the unclean sanctified it to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from the dead works to serve the living God? And for this cause, he is the mediator of the New Testament that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first trans testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For there is a testament for where is a for where a testament is, <laughs> there must also of necessity be the death of the test testator. For the testament is in is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the tester, testator lives. We're going to stop there. <laughs> um, so here we have the argument that the word but refers to there's a change in topics. All right, We've had the previous part of this chapter has all been about the uh, temple, the tabernacle being a copy of the heavenly, heavenly, that Jesus was the high priest after the order of Melchizedek, not after the order of of Aaron, and it says, but Christ being the high priest of good things by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not this building. So he's concluding his statement with this, and then it says, neither by the blood of goats or calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. The blood of Christ... He's now taking it to the sacrifices and saying, you offered a sacrifice every, well, the, the uh, Day of Atonement sacrifice once a year, uh, the Passover lamb once a year, the celebration of the tabernacles once a year. And then he says, and every day, you know, and each week you'd come in with your Thanksgiving offerings and your burnt offerings. And he goes, Jesus' blood was more than those. All right, so now he's bringing the conclusion to his, his, to his argument up to this point, that Jesus has been better, 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 better. Now he's saying the blood that Jesus shed for us is better. And, you know, so he's, he's bringing his argument full circle because the Jews, you know, again, he's talking to the Hebrew people, and these happen to be in Rome, but he's talking to them and saying, you know, why do you want to go back to the law? Jesus is better than what you were practicing. So now he's getting down to the, the final nail in the, in the better statements. Uh, his blood was better. 
All right. Uh, every year you had to go do these things. Now Jesus has done it once and for all. <laughs> He's entered into the tabernacle to present the perfect blood that covers all sin. And so he's drawing his case and going, why are you all wanting to get back? Why are you wanting to go back to the, the rules and the regulations and, and all of this? And, you know, the sad thing is that we as humans like rules to a degree. As long as we agree to obey the rules and, and we think the rules are good, we like rules because it makes us feel good. I followed all these rules. I am doing good. And so the Hebrew Jews were saying, well, we don't like this grace thing. We don't like this walking by faith thing. Just give us our rules back <laughs> so that we can know how we're, you know, we can check off the boxes and know that we're serving God. And unfortunately, there are many Christians who are just saying, give me a bunch of boxes to check. Uh, read my Bible today, check. Said my prayers today, check. You know, it's Sunday, went to church, check. <laughs> You know, uh, I didn't use the Lord's name in vain. Check. You know, didn't have too many lustful thoughts. Half a check. <laughs> you know, but we go down this list and we're trying to check off a whole bunch of things and saying, well, I'm okay with God because <laughs> I have all these check marks. And there are many Christians that are doing just what these Hebrew people do and say, just, you know, just tell me what to do. Give me some rules to follow and I'll be happy. <laughs> Uh, because I'll know that I'm checking off those boxes. And this is what he's saying. The blood of Jesus was better. But the blood of Jesus puts us back into living by grace, walking by faith, and not having a whole bunch of rules to check off and say, I'm doing good. Because a relationship is what it takes. Can I It tells us that we walk by faith, that Jesus completed the, the rules. Now, as we walk with him and the Holy Spirit convicts us, there's going to be certain things that I can't do because I get into the Bible and it says this is, this is wrong. And many of you have experienced it, you know, when you come to me and you say, you know, is this okay in the Bible? As soon as you ask me if something is okay in the Bible, my answer is going to be it's not for you. Because you are not a, we can walk in liberty. If we have the liberty to do things and our conscience not bothering us, the Holy Spirit's not bothering us, then it's okay. But as soon as you walk in and say, this is wrong through God, not, not by people putting a bunch of rules on you, then it's, then it's known to be wrong. You know, can I do, you know, is, as soon as you're doing, saying that, you, I know that the Holy Spirit has been talking to you You've been reading the Bible and you're coming to a conclusion that this is not right. There are things that I can't do that other people can do with no problem and, and it's not a sin. And there's probably things that I can do that some other people can't do and it would, because I have the liberty. Paul addressed this in, in Corinthians to the Corinthians people. He said, you know, is it, you know, they were saying, is it okay to eat meat offered to idols? Paul's answer was, if you can do it by liberty, not a problem. But if, it's, if, if you feel that it's offended you, don't do it. If it's going to offend somebody else, don't do it in their presence. You know, so we do have a responsibility to others. If there's something that I can do without any problem, but I know that it offends somebody, 
then I'm going to back off from doing it and not walk in that freedom, even though I had the freedom to do, and I'm not going to name anything off because who knows what it might be. And we all have that, that capacity. For our love for one another, we don't do something even though we have the liberty to do it without a problem. Now, this, you know, and now the counter on that is it's their problem that they have a problem with it. Okay? But our job is not to, not to make them fall because of our liberty. Because Jesus' blood is greater. You know, grace is what we live under. And this is the wonderful thing. You know, and I've said this many times. When I graduated from Bible College, I knew all the answers to everything, every biblical problem there was, and I would fight you to the teeth over them. Since then, I have learned, number one, I didn't have all the answers. Number two, most of them don't matter anyway, so it's not worth fighting over. Outside of the Bible is God's word. Jesus is, is the one and only Son of God, and he is the way, the truth, and life, and the only way to salvation. There's not a whole lot I'm going to sit there and argue with somebody over now, I do love discussions and talks with people, but if they put up a flag on the, on the mountainside and said, I'm going to die for this, this truth, all right, have fun. Just, just believe what you want to believe. You know, I, I know what I believe. I know why I believe it, and I love to have discussions about what I believe and why I believe it. But if it's going to be a battle, like, like I said, outside of about those three areas that I told you, I'm not going to have a battle over what the scriptures say. Because it's not worth it. It really isn't. You know, I know that God's word is true. I know that Jesus is the son of God. And I know he died for our sins and was raised again from the dead. And that he's the only way to heaven. Outside of those things, there's not much worth arguing over. I have, and you all know, I have very strong opinions about what I believe. And I will defend them. And I'll tell you why. If you want to disagree with me, that's great. All I'm going to ask is, why do you believe what you believe? Do you know why you believe what you believe? I already know why you believe. If you disagree with me, I already know why you disagree, and I know what you believe because I know the other side of the story because I've studied over and over again. So I know pretty much what you're going to tell me as, as far as you, your beliefs, and that's fine. It doesn't bother me. You know, and this is the important thing. Why do you believe what do you believe? You know, uh, is very, very important. And here, the writer is saying, the blood was given once and for all, having obtained eternal redemption for us. This is the beautiful nature of it. Redemption. The buying back of the slave. Buying back of the people that had walked away. And I love the fact that it puts eternal in front of it. You know, there are a lot of people who don't believe that once you're saved, you're saved because they believe that there's things that you can do to undo what God did for you. I don't understand that. You know, everywhere it says eternal redemption, eternal life. And if you don't take that, then you've got to say God lied to us. You know, he didn't give me eternal life unless I maintained it all the way to my death. He, you know, I just don't, what they tell me does not, makes sense. Uh, they'll, and I know the verses they'll pick out that, you know, if you don't endure to the end, that, you know, if you, you know, can, can do this, you can do this, you know. Uh, if you constantly sin, you've got a problem. And I understand what they're saying. But I would say that they were never saved in the first place. They didn't lose it. They had just never committed to Christ. 
And that's a very different distinction. And, you know, here he says, our redemption is eternal. We have been bought back from the slave market. And this is what the picture here is the kinsman redeemer. The kinsman redeemer was the near kin to you that redeemed your family when you got yourself into trouble. All right. Uh, many of you might know that the firstborn in, in the Jewish religion got a double blessing, a double blessing of the inheritance. Well, people go, well, that's wonderful. No, there was a lot of responsibility that went with that double, that double blessing. He, the, the firstborn was not just getting wealthy with the double portion. He was actually to take that second portion, and it was to be used to redeem any family member that got into trouble. So your fifth or sixth brother got in trouble and, and went into debt and lost, lost his family property. You were to go buy back that property, help, the, help your brother get back on his feet, and restore him. You were the patriarch of the family. You were to use that extra blessing to help out the family member. It wasn't just, here, you're, you're the oldest. Get, you know, get, get a free extra, extra money. There was a lot of responsibility that went with that double portion. Here, Jesus has redeemed humanity. He purchased back the fallen man. And it's, it's his blood that was the perfect sacrifice. The greater sacrifice than the Day of Atonement sacrifice. The greater sacrifice than the Passover lamb. His blood is what covers our sin. And is once and for all. He died at Calvary for all the sins of the world that have ever been, ever will be committed. His blood covered sin. So in verse 13 it says, For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled, sprinkling the unclean sanctified to the purifying of the flesh. So here he's going to, again, he's talking to the Jews. All right. These mean a lot, of, lot to the Jews. The blood sprinkled. Now, if you're not familiar with the heifer, they would take a perfect heifer. That is pure red heifer. <laughs> uh, they would make sure there was no hair on that thing that was not red. They would then burn it. They would use that ashes and pour it into water with the blood and use it for purification rites. And this is what he's talking about, the ashes of the heifer. All right? So this helps you to get back into this. You know, I try to, try to go back and show you the history of all of this. Uh, this would be through Exodus chapter 24, 6 through 8, where he's talking about Everything in the tabernacle, when it was built, was sprinkled with blood. The ashes of the heifer were used for purification ceremonies. And so all of this is packed with information when you know the, the stories behind it. Uh, we as Gentiles read in and go, oh, kind of gross, you're putting blood all over the place, and you're, and you're talking about ashes, but these, and it probably was, but, but the, to the Jewish people, these are big deals. You know, this is how purification was done. They sprinkled blood over their things, and then they would put the, they'd take the little bit of the ashes of the heifer, put it in pure water, and sprinkle that over you to, for purification ceremonies. And so this is what the writer is saying. And then he goes, if, if those things could purify the flesh, 
and they didn't, but you know, from the Jewish perspective, they were pure for one year at that point. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God? Now, this without spot to God is referring back to the heifer, referring back to the, the sacrificial offerings. Each one of those had to be without spot. You took the best of your lambs, the best of your calf, the best of your cows, you brought them in, they would be sacrificed for you. The, the red heifer had to be a perfect sacrifice. So his predecessor here was the sacrifices and the heifer, and then he comes to Jesus. Jesus is that eternal sacrifice of those natures, and he says he was offered without spot to purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Here is the beautiful statement, purge, to make clean. Do you remember when you asked Jesus Christ into your heart that your conscience was finally made pure? The sin was lifted off. All the problems that you had where you were struggling with, I don't know how to please God, I don't know if I'm clean enough, I don't know... You know, have I done enough good stuff? <laughs> Here he's saying, the, the blood of Jesus purges our conscience. It is why, it is why I know that I know that I'm saved. <laughs> because I know that God has cleaned my life. I know that he has covered me with his grace and that his blood has forgiven my sins. I would be in trouble if it had to be me. Because I am not that good. I have lots of problems with lots of areas. <laughs> and I know that I speak, everybody in this room knows the same thing. I can see the smiles on people's faces when we say that. Without the blood of Christ, there would be no hope. And this is the argument that's being made. Uh, verse 15, And for this cause, he is the mediator of the new covenant, that by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the first testament, that they which are called might receive the promise of internal inheritance. So here he says, he is the mediator. Now, mediator is the arbitrator, the lawyer. Um, he's the one that pleads our case before the Father. You know, we've got Satan always sitting there trying to attack and say, you know, he goes to the courts of heaven and says, this person's bad, this person's bad. And we saw that, you know, in, in Job 1 through, 1 through 3, we see Satan going up before God and, and making his accusations. Jesus just stands, stands up and he has just one, one statement to make, covered by the blood. Covered by my blood. And he wins the case. <laughs> Every single time, because we cannot stand before the Father except by the blood of Christ. And this is, the blood of Christ is becoming less and less taught in churches and in, in Christian churches across America. And it's the most important thing we have because without the blood of Christ, we are not forgiven and in relationship with God. If it wasn't for his blood, there is no relationship with God. And this is important for us. And the more churches stop teaching about the blood, the weaker the Christians will be in that church because they don't understand you know, they, I'm not going to say they're not saved. They're just not understanding the power that gets them saved. And this is the thing we have to understand. 
You know, and those churches, if they're not teaching about the blood of Christ, they're not teaching about the grace of Christ, or if they are, they're going too far and using grace as a license to sin. And this is what Paul said in, in the scriptures. He goes, you know, where, uh, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And then his next statement was, should we therefore sin to make the, so that grace will abound? And he says, God forbid. If you can sin just because you want to see grace abound, there's a problem with your relationship with God. And that's basically what he said. If I'm truly in relationship with God and he is changing me from the inside out because the Holy Spirit is inside me changing me, eventually I become more like Christ because of the changes in, my, in myself that he is doing. All right? And this is the good news that we have. He died for my sins. I accept that gift. He comes in and he changes me. I don't have to sit there with a whip in a chair and uh, you know, taming my flesh like a lion, you know, lion tamer saying, get back in that cage, get back in that cage. Because what does he say? I am crucified. He wants to crucify my flesh. He doesn't want it tamed. He doesn't want it put into a cage. He wants it crucified. And he is going to crucify it. And he is going to change me to be more like him. And it's all God's work. And this is the beauty of it. As he's making changes, I live after his way. And he changes everybody at a different rate, at a different speed, in different areas. And the problem that we so often will have is we'll look at somebody and go on, well, I don't know how they can do that. You know, that's a sin. I don't know how they can do it. And we start judging them. Now, number one, now we're guilty because we're judging them, you know, by our standards. And God is looking at them and saying, well, you know, you're worried about this. I'm worried about this other really big thing in their life that I'm trying to get out of it. And you're worried about, you may think it's a big thing, but it's not a big thing in their life. It would be a big thing in your life, maybe, but it's not in theirs. And I've seen this with something like smoking. You know, I don't like smoking. You know, and, and it bugs me when people smoke anywhere with me because I think it stinks and it's terrible. But I'm not going to judge them because there's no verse in the Bible that says, thou shalt not smoke. All right? I wish there was. Then I could, have the, then I could say that's a sin. But there's not. Now, there's principles that can be applied to it and all of that. But there's, that is an area where God is going to deal with each individual. Now, there are certain things that we know are wrong. You shall not bear false witness or lie. You shall not covet. You shall not, you shall not uh, commit adultery. You shall not commit a fornication. There's a lot of places where we say this is an absolute black and white. There is no <laughs> in-between. But there's a lot of places where there's not a black and white in the scriptures. And we just have to let people stand or fall before God as they work out their own salvation with fear and trembling. Because God says, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. Our job is just to love people. Quit judging other people about what they're doing, how they're living. And you know, one of the things that I have really big problems with, it's bad enough with Christians that we judge one another. But you know what? How can we judge a lost person? They're doing what is natural when they sin. 
My job is definitely not to judge the lost person. My job is to love them, show them the love of Christ, and let them get saved, and then the Holy Spirit will come into them and make their changes. I said this morning, my goal is, is not to get people to come to church. As great as church is and as wonderful as church is, I want to see them get saved. Once they're saved, the Holy Spirit will get them in the right church to help them grow. Hopefully it's ours, but I mean, it doesn't matter. But the Holy Spirit will then come and convert them and change them. Our job is their eternal destination, not to get them through the doors. And all of this is because Jesus' blood is what's important. His sacrifice, and again, that we receive the eternal inheritance. Again, the word eternal. This, this whole book is about the eternality of this, the perfection of the sacrifice, the perfection of the cleanliness. That God comes in and he says, you have an eternal inheritance. You have been made a child of God, and God is not going to disown his child. Well, you know what? I really said you were going to be my child, but uh, you were just too bad. I'm not going to take you anymore. That is not how God looks at it. Why? Because the only way you're a child of God is by accepting Jesus Christ's sacrifice and being covered by the blood. And then God looks at you, and what does he see? He sees the righteousness of Christ. He does not see all the other stuff that you've done. Now, will there be consequences for not living the way you're supposed to? Yes. When you go to the Bema Seat of Christ, there will be consequences for not living the way that, you're, that, you, that you have understood that you're supposed to live with God and your, your unrighteous works will burn up and the works that God has done through you will be returned back to you as a reward. So there's always consequences. But the consequence is not our salvation. And this is the good news. We cannot let Satan lie to us. Satan likes to lie to us and say, you are so awful, you have done so many bad things, there's no hope for you. He's a liar. We need to remember, he is the father of lies, and when he speaks lies, he's speaking his native tongue. So when you're hearing Satan attack, the one thing you know is it's a lie. All right? Understand that. It's a lie. When he is attacking, he speaks lies. And we need to quit listening to anything that is not biblical in its context. Because Why do I say that? Because what did Satan do when he tempted Jesus? He quoted scripture out of context, but he quoted scripture to Jesus, and Jesus answered with the rest of the scriptures or with different scripture to answer the question. And again, you all know that when you ask me a Bible question, what is the very first thing I do? We go in and we look at the context of the verse and say, and just reading the context usually takes and clarifies what the question is. But we need to make sure that we take things in context. What does the scripture say, you know, 5, 10, 20 verses ahead before it and 5, 10, 20 verses after it to know what is going on. And this is all very important for us. Uh, and then he says, he's the mediator. And then it says, for the redemption of the, the, the first testament, that we might receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. There's nothing wrong with the first testament. 
The First Testament is all about the laws and the rules, but the laws and the rules were not ever designed to get people into heaven. The laws and the rules were designed for one purpose, to tell us that we're a sinner, that we cannot keep the law. And you know, this is the very important thing. If we don't think we, you know, somehow we go, okay, well, I can't keep these ones, you know, somehow I think I can keep God's laws. We don't even keep government laws, work laws. We don't even keep our own laws. You know, I will never do such and such as I end up doing it, you know, down the road. We can't even keep our own word in our own, in our own instructions. So when we stand before God, he's going to start with his laws. And then show you, you, you didn't even keep what your, own, what, your own, what your own rules are. It's very interesting out at the prison. Those guys have a huge set of rules that they have to follow that aren't put out by anybody that, in the administration. They have their own set of rules that don't make any sense to anybody else. All right? You're not to speak to anybody in authority about anything important, and if you do, you'll get, you'll get beat up. So you're not supposed to turn anybody in. You're not supposed to, not supposed to be friendly with any, any of the staff members. Uh, if there is a m- big movement out on the yard, you're supposed to join it, even though you're going to get into trouble and you have no desire to get into trouble. But if you don't get into trouble, if you don't go out there, you, instead of being in trouble with the administration, you're going to be in trouble with the prisoners. And the prisoners have a little, little more leeway in protect, you know, getting, their, getting their way, even though you know, because they have their enforcers that will beat you up, even though they will end up in solitary. There's people that will enforce their rules. And many of them don't keep those rules. You know, all God has to do is say, no, you didn't even keep your own rules. You, you not only did you not follow mine, you didn't follow your own rules. You did not even follow the rules you told yourself you were going to follow. How many people said, well, I'm going to give up. I'm never going to take another drink. I'm never going to look at somebody lustfully. I'm never going to take another drug. I'm never, never going to tell another lie. It doesn't matter what you say I'm never going to do. You're going to end up doing, doing it. And that's the whole purpose of this. The law shows that we are not able to keep and be perfect. And this is what he's saying, that he came so that we will be able to have, by redemption, that perfect, eternal um, inheritance. And then he goes, for where the testament is, there must also by necessity be the death of the testator. In other words, for, the will to be, for a will to be happening, somebody has to die. Now, uh, you know, your grandma, grandpa, whoever it might be, has a will sitting in their, sitting in their desk and until they die, that will doesn't mean anything. All right? Uh, and that's what he's saying on there. You know, there's a will. There's a, there's a statement of a will. But until that person dies, it does not become effective. Jesus died so that we could be fulfilled. And this is what he's saying. There has been a death. The death has been accomplished. Whereupon, in verse 18, neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Uh, oops, excuse me, I skipped 17. For the testament is in force after men are dead, otherwise it has no strength at all while the test, testator lives. So in essence, again, the will is sitting in the drawer. 
Your grandpa's still alive. You do not get his house and his cars and his money in the bank or anything else until grandpa dies. And then they pull the will out and the will has effect. And that's what he's being able to say. All right, now, verse 18. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood, for when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats and water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined unto you. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And almost all things are by law purged with blood, and without, the sh- without shedding of blood there is no remission. It was, thus, it was therefore necessary that the pattern of th- patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifice than these. For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, but with the, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. So here we have them going over. When Moses came down off Mount Sinai, they built the tabernacle. He gave them the laws, the first sacrifice. They took the blood and literally sprinkled it on everything. <laughs> on, the, on the Ten Commandments, on the altars, on the priest, on, on the tables, on the menorah. The, you know, everything was sprinkled. Now, not covered with blood, but sprinkled with the blood of the animal, all signifying the blood of Jesus. And Paul is saying, if that blood could purify things to be in service... The greater blood, Jesus' blood, is what is important on this. And he talks about the hyssop. Uh, and hyssop was a branch with lots of leaves and held onto things. They dipped the hyssop in the blood and the water and they sprinkled, they, they splattered everything by you know, sprinkling the hyssop all over everything. And it says, This is the blood of the testament which God has enjoined you, brought together. Moreover, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and the vessels of ministry, and almost all things are by love purged with blood, and without shedding of blood there is no remission. This goes all the way back. The very first sacrifice for sin was in the Garden of Eden, when God killed animals to clothe Adam and Eve with their sin and blood was shed. And that is for the remission of their sin so that they can then be back into a fallen relationship with God, but a relationship with God and that first sacrifice was made. Laying the pattern for, for that point on that blood must be shed. And every false religion uses the same process of sacrificing blood, but not for the same purposes or for the right purposes. Because God put it in. And always remember, Satan is a liar. He, he counterfeits things. You know, Satan will, is not a creator. He always counterfeits. God gives a rule. Satan will come up with eight or nine lies so that you will be happy with one of them. 
You know, Jesus says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Satan will come along and say, well, you know, he's just a way. He's not the way. Uh, oh, by the way, it doesn't matter anyway. All people go to heaven, and, you know, because God is love. Oh, there's not even a God or afterlife anyway, so don't even, don't even, don't even worry about it. Satan comes all these, you know, do more good than bad and you'll be okay with God. All these lies that are out there, we need to be very careful to know the truth so that we know the lies. You know, and this is important. How do you study, you know, how do I, and I've talked about this, how do I witness to a Mormon, uh, a uh, Seven-day Adventist, you know, somebody a Catholic, you know, a, a, a Muslim, uh, a person from, you know, following Buddha. It's real simple. The Bible says you're a lost sinner. Sin leads to death. Jesus died for your sins, and you need to accept Jesus. Doesn't matter what they believe, because the truth is what they need to hear. I, I am not going to argue them out of what they believe. And this is the problem with all the studies and learning about all the different religions and everything. And believe me, I know a lot about them over after 40 years of walking with God, 50 years of walking with God, studying these things. I know what many of these believe. But the way I witness to them is the same way for every single person. You're a lost sinner. You're going to hell. Jesus died for your sins. And that is all that we need to know. Uh, you know, and this goes back to how do the Treasury Department train their agents to know a false money is they handle nothing but the real things. Now they learn what the real things are supposed to look like, and then and on their big test they'll put a, they'll slip a bill in there and and it just instantly because they know the right, they know the true, the untrue sticks out. And this is something that you will find more and more as you're walking with God, listening to somebody on the radio. And all of a sudden, they say something, and every hair on the back of your neck stands up, and, and you're, the Holy Spirit is screaming, warning. <laughs> and you're going, okay, what, what are they talking about? And you're going, oh, okay, that is not a true statement. Why? Because you know the truth. Know the truth and study the scriptures. And know what it is, because the blood is where the remission comes from. And... And it says that it was therefore necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified, but the heavenly things themselves are with a better sacrifice than these. So the tabernacle had to be purified by the blood of the goats and the, and the lambs and the, and, the, and the bulls, he says, but the heavenly tabernacle needs to be purified with a better sacrifice the sacrifice of Jesus' blood. Jesus took his blood to the Father and presented it to the Holy of Holies in heaven where the Father sits on the mercy seat and presented the blood to the Father and said, here is the perfect blood that has paid the sin debt of those fallen people. And he was able to give a better sacrifice, the, the, more, the perfect sacrifice that everything else was a shadow for. Perfect Day of Atonement sacrifice sprinkled his blood or presented his blood or whatever, whatever it was in heaven, he presented his perfect blood to the Father. And, you know, this is the great news for us, that 
It is because of his blood that we are forgiven. Nothing that I have done, nothing that I ever will do, gets me forgiven. It is the blood of Christ and the acceptance of that sacrifice, acceptance of that gift, where I declare, I believe, Jesus, you died for me. I'm going to put my life into your hands. And I totally submit myself to him. And the next thing I know, we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. We're, we're covered with all these things that we have. You know, 51 things happen to us at the moment of salvation that are so perfect. We are sealed, just as I wrote, wrote in today's bulletin on the back of today's, we are sealed by Christ and the Holy Spirit. And you know, that just means that God says, okay, I'm, gonna, I'm covering you, you're clothed, you're, you're finished. I am saying that you are complete. End of story. On the cross, Jesus said, it is finished. Sin has been paid for. When people stand before God, it is not because of their sin that they will be rejected. It is because they're not perfect. Their righteousness is not perfect when they stand at the white throne judgment. And then they will be judged because of their imperfection. Not because of the sin, but because their righteousness is filthy rags. And in Jesus and God is going to say, guilty. You're all guilty. We have to be covered in the blood of Christ so that we have the righteousness of Christ as we stand before, before God. And this is the good news. His blood is better than anything else that is out there, any in the picture for the temple out there. And this is what Paul's trying to get the Hebrew people to understand. This blood of Christ is better than what you're trying to go back to. Because they're all thinking, well, got to go back for the Day of Atonement, got to go back for Passover, got to go back for Tabernacles, got to do my three times a year at the temple because I'm not seeing that Jesus was the fulfillment. And he's bringing out Jesus fulfilled those rules. You don't need the picture when the real one is there. You know, and I heard a pastor one time saying, you know, this would be like a, the guy in love with his wife, really loves his wife, and comes home and instead of spending time with his wife, goes out to the picture, picture of her in the garage and just stares at the picture all day. I love you so much, you're so wonderful, you're so great, and talking to the picture instead of talking to his wife. This is what he's kind of talking about. You know, you're all wanting the picture of what happened, get into the reality of what's happening. Spend time with the real, not the picture. And they're wanting to go back, backwards into where they were going. Verse 24, for, for Christ is not entered into the holy place made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor yet that he should offer himself often, as the high priest entered into the high place every year with the blood of others, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world has he appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after the judgment, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear a second time without sin unto salvation. So here again he's continuing this, Jesus is better. 
right? He says, Jesus did not enter into the temple. <laughs> okay? He did not enter into the physical man-made temple, into the high place, because he wasn't qualified. He was not a priest after the order of Aaron who could go into the temple's holy place or the holy of holies. But he was qualified as the priest after the order of Melchizedek to enter into the heavenly holy of holies, which Aaron's priest would not be qualified to get into. All right, so he's saying he did not enter into the figures, but in, did go into the very presence of God, the real presence of God, not the, not the secondary Shekinah glory, which was great, but he got right into the perfect presence of God the Father in heaven. And then he goes into the whole thing that he should not offer himself often as the high priest did. Jesus does not have to die every year. He died once and for all because he was the perfect sacrifice presenting to the God outside of time to cover sin. So God, remember that God is outside of time. Heaven is outside of time as we know it. Jesus went to the Father and presented his blood outside of time and saying, Father, I'm covering all of these people from Adam to whoever the last sinner is <laughs> in the millennial kingdom. He says, I've covered their sin for all of time. And it, he presented his blood to the Father. And, you know, and it says, for then must he have suffered often suffered since the foundation of the world, but now at the end of the world he has appeared and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He has put away the sin issue. All right? And this is why when people say, I hope I'm good enough to go into heaven, what are they saying? I've done more good than bad. The bad is not the issue. Their good isn't good enough. Isaiah says our righteousness, all our righteousness is filthy rags. Without the righteousness of Christ, we are not acceptable. If we try to do it in our own righteousness, we're unacceptable. And here it says, in plain English, sin has been dealt with. Sin has been put away. It has been covered. It's going to be the righteousness of Christ that makes us acceptable. It would be easy for the Father to look down and say, this is the goat and this is the sheep. The sheep are covered with the righteousness of Christ. The goats are filled with their own righteousness. He says, okay, sheep over here, all you goats over there, all you ones trying to walk in in your own righteousness, over there. Remember the parable of the king who, who made a feast and that all the, all the people would not come that were invited, basically the Jews. Uh, and he says, okay, go out in the streets and buy ways, bring them in and give them the clothing for the marriage supper. And then he came out and he saw somebody that was not properly clothed. How did he know he wasn't properly clothed? He wasn't wearing the right, wasn't wearing the articles given to them. And he cast that person out into the outer darkness or hell. This is what people will be judged by. They may look like they're a Christian. They may act like they're a Christian. They might even act better than most Christians. But if they're not clothed in the righteousness of Christ, it doesn't matter. They could be as close to perfect as possible, humanly possible, but their own righteousness will not get them into heaven. It must be through the blood of Christ. And then 
Verse 27, we've all heard this one. It is appointed unto men to die, once to die, and after that, the judgment. This is the verse that we know that gives us hope. You know, we as Christians will die, but we will go into eternal life. Our body will want, fall away, but we do not truly die. Our body falls away, but we enter into eternal walk with God because we already have eternal life. And eternal life starts the moment you accept Jesus Christ. It doesn't start the moment you die. It starts the moment Jesus Christ comes into you and makes you alive. All that happens when we die physically is we just transport from this world into the spiritual world. But everybody will face judgment. Those who don't know Christ have two, two deaths. The death of this body and then eternal death in the lake of fire. Eternal. And that's... We've got to understand that the decisions we make in this lifetime are eternal decisions. If I or anybody we know rejects Christ, that's an eternal decision. If we accept Christ, it's an eternal decision. And this is what's the beauty of this. It's, it's an eternal one-time judgment. This is, this is be your verse. If anybody wants to believe in reincarnation, this is your verse for, to stop reincarnation. We're appointed to die one time, <laughs> not hundreds of thousands of times. And when we die, we go into judgment. No second chances, no third, fourth, fifth, sixth chances. This is your verse that is, it goes against uh, reincarnation. One death, one judgment. And we want to keep that in mind. Verse 28 says, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear a second time without sin unto salvation. He bore our sins and then was able to take that sacrifice and say, Now it is perfect. Jesus, when we see him again in the second coming, will not be the lamb for, so, for being slain he will be the lion of Judah the king of the universe when he comes back he's going to bear the scars because the Jews are going to look at him according to the to the, uh, back and say where, and where did you get those you know, where did you get those wounds and he doesn't say you did it he, he just tells them in the house of a friend <laughs> the house of a friend get, you know, gave me these scars but he comes back victorious as the king. He's not coming back meek and mild. You know, and we see that in Revelation where we have the silence of heaven for a half hour and everything shifts from the mercy and grace that he's been showing to judgment and trials being the primary. Jesus becomes no longer the lamb. He still is the lamb, but he's now revealed as the lion the king and he comes back to this world in victory and you know the real crazy thing is satan is going to try to conquer, you know try to fight him at that point at the last battle at the end of this millennial kingdom he again tries to get people to fight him you now i don't know how he even thinks he can beat god because <laughs> jesus just speaks a word and the battle's over <laughs> and then they go to judgment on the, at the end of the millennial kingdom. That's how powerful. 
Satan is on a leash. He has to ask for permission to do anything. This is our eternal hope. Now, I agree and I understand, you know, sometimes we wish that God would not give him quite as much permission to do things as he gets, but God has his reasons. And that's why I love the book of Job, because, you know, in Job we're shown exactly what happens. Satan goes to him, gets a little bit, goes again, gets a little bit more, goes again, gets a little more. But always God said, you can do this, but not this. You can only do this. And even at the last one, he says, you can take his health, but you cannot take his life. Now, Job wished that his life had died, at least during, the, during, the, during that time. But in the long run, it was worth it because of the blessings he received after that. We need to just learn to trust God. No matter what's going on, our trust needs to be in him. And saying, God, can't see it. I can't see how this is good. I don't even say how this can be good. But God, I trust you. I trust you and your control, the peace that you've given me. And this is where the importance comes in. Do we fully trust him? And when we get to chapter 11, the whole, whole roll call of faith, we're going to see all these people that went through hardships. You know, we look at some of these great leaders and people of the Bible and say, well, well look how they got it. They, you know, they were so used of God. Yeah, they were used of God. You know, how much trials and tribulations did they go through as they were being used by God? How many times did they actually step forward and say, I'm just going to follow God? I love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Standing before Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar asked them a question, you know, who can deliver you from my hands? And I love their answer. Our God can deliver us, but whether he does or does not, we will serve the Lord. Is that our answer when we're looking at possible death? I will serve God no matter what. Sometimes it might just be emotional death. We're going to get made fun of. We're going to be ostracized. That probably is harder than facing real death because when we die, we get to go to heaven. Sometimes being able to have to face emotional, you know, ostracism is worse than literally giving our life. Do we trust God to say, God, you can deliver me, but if you do or don't, I still will serve you. Sometimes God delivers you, like he did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Sometimes we actually die in the furnace. <laughs> There were many martyrs all through scripture that died and God did not deliver them through it. But he did use their death to bring people to Christ. So we need to just know that God is going to use what happens to us no matter what. <laughs> he has a better plan than we could ever imagine. If we die, praise God, we can enter into his presence. If we don't, he gives us the strength to get through whatever it is that we have to go through. And it's not always easy. You, know, you want to have some hard times with this? You know, I'm not even going to tell you to go to Fox's Book of Martyrs because that was just the benefit of all those who went into glory. But you read a story like Richard Warmbrandt's Tortured for Christ. He had to live after each torture. 
And he said in the later days that there were times when he could not remember anything about the Bible because of the torture that he went through, other than he trusted God. And that was about the only thing he had to grab hold of. He couldn't remember anything about the Bible because of the torture, and yet he stood with God through all of the torture. And he's not the only one. He's just the most recent book that I read, reread. Over and over again, people have been suffering for Christ so that Christ can be elevated. And we need to just trust in God. God has a longer-term view than we do. We as humans, we get so arrogant, you know, we think our life is so important, you know. God, if, if I was to be taken out of the picture, this whole business would fall apart, the whole family would fall apart, the, the church would fall apart, whatever it might be. You know, and God says, no, <laughs> it, I'm the one in control. You're not that important. And you know, this is the thing that happens. A key person dies in a company. The company usually will continue you know, if it's a big company. You know, if it's only a one-man company, it'll die with, the, with that person. But if it's a big company, you might have somebody who's important, but they're replaceable. Somebody will replace them. Uh, one of the things that I have learned over the years in churches, somebody that is really key person in a church moves on or dies or whatever, God always replaces them, usually with more than one person. So now you have multiple people doing the work instead of one, and more gets done. God always has the plan in place to keep his, keep his work going. And if it is a work that will die with somebody you know, being taken out, then it wasn't God's work. He always has people in their place. And it's hard sometimes. You look up, God, what will happen to this church if that person was taken out? God says, well, there's, when it's time for them to go, I will have the right people to take over their place. And I've seen it over and over. Usually it takes two or three people to replace somebody, but it turns out to be good because now you've got more people doing the work, more people sharing the load, and then they expand and need three or four people to replace them when they, when they move on. God is in control. Learn to trust him. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you that you are the better sacrifice. You are the better way. Help us learn to trust you in all that we do, and we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you, and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. 
You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.